to open up to John chapter 17 and we will, we will continue our exposition as we will look this morning at verses 6 through 10. John's Gospel, chapter 17, verses 6 through 10. This is the Lord Jesus praying to the Father. This entire chapter is the Lord Jesus praying to the Father. This is just hours before His arrest. This is just hours before His trial, before His crucifixion, before His death. He says, To the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me I ask on their behalf I do not ask on behalf of the world but of those whom you have given me for they are yours and all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine and I have been glorified in them Father, I pray and ask now that that I would not be seen here, but your truth, the truth of your Son, our Savior, would be rightly declared, not by might nor strength of me, but by your Spirit, that all those that are Christians here this morning would come to a new understanding of sovereign grace that they would embrace this truth, which, Lord, is biblical, and may they understand that this is biblical. This is not some derived theology of men. And for those here who do not know you this morning, may this be, according to your will, I pray, the day in which you bring them to saving faith at the foot of the cross of your Son, the hour for which he came. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one of the greatest miracles that we experience as believers is the continual communion that we have with God through prayer. Having been saved by grace, we are the recipients and have been granted access to the throne of grace. Direct access to God in prayer through the mediatorial work of His Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a great encouragement for me as a pastor to know that there are people praying for me. That in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty and uncertainty, there's a group of people who pray for me regularly. That's greatly encouraging. They pray for me in preparing sermons. They prepare. Pray for me in studying during the week. They pray for you that God will prepare your hearts to receive this truth, to understand His grace, to be transformed and walk in holiness because of the price of the cross. That's a privilege. It's even more encouraging to know that the Scriptures inform us in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, that the Spirit also helps with our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Even in the midst of our confusion, brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God prays according to the very will of God. Now, if that's not encouraging enough, here in John 17, we are marching together right into the midst of the Lord Jesus Christ praying on behalf of you. Yes, you. This is Christ praying for his church. If you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this prayer is not only for those 11 disciples that were with him this night, but it's for me and it's for you. It's for all Christians, all believers. We have entered into what some refer to as the very holy of holies of all of Scripture. John chapter 17. This is known as the great high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this concludes the upper room discourse. This evening, Jesus was with his disciples from John chapter 13 all the way through John chapter 16. And during that time, early on in chapter 13, he ordered Judas out. He was therefore for the rest of the time with these 11 men. And now he prays for them. As you'll see, he also prays for those who will come to believe in him. Those that will be brought to true saving faith through time. All that's left for the Lord this night having arrived at his hour, which was the cross, is the culmination of all of his suffering. That's all that's left. Now, as a reminder, you were here with us a couple weeks ago, in our study of the Lord's Prayer thus far, we see a description of the people for whom Christ prays. It's important that we do not miss this. And for whom alone he prays. The first thing he says of them is that they are God's people. This group has been marked out by God. They've been chosen by God. Jesus said, they were yours and you gave them to me. The book of Hebrews tells us that he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus Christ. He lives to make intercession for us. Us who? Who's this us? This us are those given from the Father to the Son. Now, the term gave or given is very important in this chapter because it's used upward of 17 times. Easy to remember. Gave or given is used 17 times in Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. So what does this mean? This gave or this group that is given. Well, quite simply, it means that God is sovereign in all things, including salvation. God is sovereign in all things, including salvation. Most specifically, this includes the election of all who believed then and all that will come to believe thereafter, you see. So, think about this. In order to be given, in order to be given, they must first be chosen. And once they're chosen, they can therefore be given. This group out of a larger group of all humanity were chosen before the foundation of the earth and given to the Son, preordained by God. Meaning that God has discernment, determined that certain people, certain people are the object of his giving. God's divine electing graces, 
Don't miss this. God's divine electing graces precede the, the giving of a people of God to the Son. And included in this giving is the faith that they have to believe, which we shall see. Now, if you are a member of this church and have been with us for the last three years, and we've been studying John for two years now, you are well aware, and if you're a visitor here today, perhaps you're not well aware, that God's sovereign electing purposes, as taught by Jesus, not Luther, Calvin, Owen, or John Leader, but taught by Jesus, are brilliantly sprinkled throughout this gospel. Throughout the Bible, for that matter. Now, we've seen this repeatedly over the past two years. So my question is this, and I say this with love, and I say this with humility, and I say this with true concern. Why are so many Christians fearful to teach? Why are so many Christians fearful to learn of God's sovereign purposes in all things? including salvation. And personally, as I've observed this for a number of years now, I see it as nothing less than human pride and a selective rejection of God's truth. And there's a remedy here. There's a great remedy. The glorious, sovereign purposes of God in salvation, when they're embraced, as, de- as declared through Scripture, will absolutely transform your entire walk with the Lord Jesus Christ you will come to a greater understanding of God that you've never seen before. Many who come to understand these truths by the grace of God, they they, they say this, it's like being born again all over again. (laughs) Many of you have experienced that. Because what happens is you come to the place of understanding how precious you are in the eyes of God the Father and God the Son. How precious you are in the price that was paid for you. I was away at a conference last week. About 40 people from the church were actually with me. And I heard a number of the best preachers in the world preach for about four days. And one of those preachers was John Piper. And John Piper wrote a book entitled Spectacular Sins. Now, he preached from his work in that book. And here's a statement he made. Listen to this. The universe came into existence for the sake of Calvary. Did you get that? The universe came into existence for the sake of Calvary. Why is that? Because of this. God preordained it. God preordained Calvary. For it is there on the cross that the manifest glory of God and his magnificent attributes would be put on display. The glorious attributes of Almighty God put on display as Christ laid his life down. You see, God was, and God is, and God forever and always shall be in sovereign control of every aspect of history from the fall of Lucifer to the fall of Adam to the sin of men to the sin of nations to men's rejection of God to the causing of events and the stopping of events. God is in sovereign control and he is preordained every purpose to reach his end. Do we dare puff out our chest and say, how dare he? Paul has an answer for us. 
In Romans 9.20, he said this, But who are you, O man, to question God? To answer back to God, your translation might say. Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? He has no right whatsoever, amen? Now let's think about this a minute. Was God sovereign over Judas, the betrayer? Have I not chosen you the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil, Jesus said? Earlier this night, as I said before, Jesus said to Judas, what you do, do quickly. What was he going to do? Betray him. God was indeed in sovereign control of Judas and his life. Was God sovereign over Herod, the one who wanted Jesus dead, the one who mocked our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Was he sovereign over Herod? Absolutely. Was God sovereign over Pilate? The one who said, you do not speak to me, you do not answer me, do you not know that I have power, I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus looked in his beady little eyes and said, you'd have no, you would have no authority whatsoever, lest it was given to you from my Father above. So yes, he had authority over Pilate. Was God in sovereign control over the spit of sinful men that ran down the Savior's face? Was God in sovereign control over the plucking of his beard? Was God in sovereign control of the son being beaten beyond recognition? Was God in sovereign control over a Roman cross, over the nails, over the spear, and over the crown of thorns that were beaten on his head? What's the answer? Yes, absolutely. Without a shadow of a doubt, without question, always and forever, he is in sovereign control over all things, including evil, yet being perfectly holy and separated from evil. That happened to be Piper's argument in his book. Is he then, friends, any less sovereign over who will be saved? I don't need to answer that for myself because our studies in John 17 will answer that question for you. It will categorically answer... Anyone who may have a doubt, and and I hope there's people here who have doubts about that. I hope there are genuine Christians here who struggle with this, and my prayer has been that God will awaken you to the glories of his sovereign control over all things. It will make you that much more grateful for Calvary. You'll be driven because of that grace to a life of obedience. Now, in review, before we begin, in review, what did we learn from Jesus' prayer most specifically that we left with last time? Well, it was this. It's very important that we remember what Jesus is praying for here. Now, as you read this glorious prayer, what you come to see is that Jesus is praying for something that is sure to come to pass. Jesus is praying for things that are 100% certain. They will occur. Knowing that God's sovereign decree was unchanging, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, nevertheless, prays. Just as he prayed at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus came into town knowing he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Nevertheless, he prayed. Jesus knew that he'd feed 5,000 men plus women and children. Nevertheless, he prayed. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus actually thanks the Father and he says, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden truth from the wise and the prudent and have revealed it to babes. 
the truths for which Jesus Christ prayed were, my friends, absolute certainties. They were not theories, they were not theological possibilities, but they were prayers of eternal assurance. But what about us? What about us? I mean, after all, if God has sovereignly set all things in order, why on earth should we pray? If God has sovereignly chosen before the foundation of the earth who will be saved, why should we pray for the lost? Why should we evangelize the lost? It's a fair question. Here's the answer. Because of this, God has divinely decreed that prayer and evangelism are the means to accomplishing his sovereign will set in order before the foundation of the world. That's why. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not the Lord's prayer. That's the disciples' prayer. You should retitle that. This is the Lord's prayer. John 17. Paul endured hardship. There was no one mocked more than Paul. There was no one who suffered more hardship than the Apostle Paul outside of the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of the name of Christ. I mean, why? Why on earth did did Paul suffer such hatred? Why did Paul have to suffer so many false apostles, so many false teachers? Why did he have to suffer false persecutions, or accusations rather? Why did he suffer beatings and stonings and floggings? You know why he endured? He gives the answer in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Just jot this down. For this reason I endure all things, for the sake of those who are chosen. So that... They also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with it, eternal glory. Paul is praying, and he endured this suffering for the sake of the elect. We pray for unbelievers for the sake of the elect. We don't know who they are. Paul didn't know who they are. Only God knows who they are. So he's praying for the elect, who in this time have not come to saving faith. He perseveres for the elect within the church. I persevere for the sake of the elect, the church. The church and the Bible gather here together, as John MacArthur said also. He said the the Bible is for Christians. The church is for Christians. We don't entertain the world. We minister to the flock. That's it. Equipping them, enabling them to evangelize the lost with the true gospel for the sake of the elect. Who are the elect? I have no idea. They asked Spurgeon that. Why do you preach? If you believe in sovereign election, why do you preach the gospel? Well, my friend, sir, if I could lift up the back of any individual and saw a red dot that revealed that they were the elect, I'd pray only for them. But I don't know who they are. Paul suffered, endured for the sake of the chosen. So why pray and evangelize if God is sovereign? Two meditations for which we walked away last time. Number one... Again, this is review. God has declared that, our, declared that our prayers are the means He uses to accomplish His sovereign will. You don't pray, God may bring trial into your life to drive you to pray. His will will be done. Secondly, Jesus Christ, sovereign God incarnate, knowing all things, prayed without ceasing. Now, that was verses 1 to 5. 
in verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays about his relationships with his disciples of that day, most specifically these 11. In verses 20 to 26, he prays concerning his relationship to future believers, all those that will guaranteed be brought to saving faith. Now, that is not some infinite number of people. That is a definite number. That is a finite number of God's elect, according to John chapter 6, verse 39, all of whom he will raise it up, all-inclusive, in the last day. It is these, my friends, those given for which Jesus prays to be kept, to be unified, to be joyful and sanctified, and we'll look at that next week. However, today, today, as outlined in your bulletin, what we want to look at is that the reasons that the Father should care for his disciples, the reason that the Father should care for these believers, the reason that the Father should care for these Christians, all of which are synonymous terms, by the way, Believers, disciples, Christians in the Bible are synonymous terms contrary to what some teach today that you can be a, be a, be a believer but not a disciple. What, is on earth, what on earth does that mean? Well, believers believe in the truth about Jesus. They ask Jesus to be their Savior, but they never bear any fruit of one who's saved. Well, then what's a disciple? Someone who bear, bears fruit of one who's saved. That does, the Bible does not teach that. Men teach that. The Bible does not teach that. Disciples, believers, Christians, true ones. We'll see later on that some were referred to as disciples, but they went away from Jesus because they were never true disciples. They just looked like it. They just talked like it. So, six reasons outlined for you in your bulletin. Six reasons that Christians are Christian. Why are Christians Christian? Well, the answers are right here for us this morning. Number one, the first reason that Christians are Christian is that Jesus has shown them the Father. Jesus has shown them the Father. Look at verse 6. I, Jesus prays to the Father, have manifested your name. This is why Jesus came into the world. To manifest the name of God. Jesus Christ came in this world to declare God. He came to manifest God to men. To some. Manifest means to make clear. Manifest means to make known. Manifest means to make thoroughly understood. Truly known. I have made something known, Father. I've made something clear and specific to these men, my Father. I have manifested your name to them. In other words... Everything that I've done for the past three years can be summarized with this. I've accomplished my ministry. I have made known, Father, your name. John chapter 1, verse 18. Perhaps you remember this. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God who's in the bosom of the Father, that's Jesus, He has explained Him. Jesus has explained the Father. The word explained comes from a Greek word from where we get our English word exegesis. To exegesis, and that's what I attempt to do each week with you, is to exegete, to pull out of the text the meaning of the text, to draw from the text its meaning. And it's Jesus who exegeted the Father perfectly. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. For I and my Father are one. 
So Jesus explained, Jesus declared, Jesus manifested the name of the Father. What is this name that he manifested? That's the next question. Well, in Scripture, God has many names, doesn't he? Too many for us to list this morning. Too many for us to study in a couple, three weeks. But we know God as creator. We know him as the almighty. We know him as shepherd. We know him as father. We know him as master. We know him as the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. What you see here is that each name of God portrays a unique characteristic of God. So one name cannot capture all that God is. So what you see here is that every attribute of God was put on display in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has declared Him. So to manifest the name of God is to reveal the essential nature of God to this group of people. So Christians are Christian because they've been granted, don't miss this, special revelation to see this manifestation. They've been granted special revelation to see and understand truly this manifestation of God. But notice, however, that there's a very distinct narrowness here. Notice. He says, I've manifested your name. Not to the entire world. Not to all. But notice what people he's referring to. That group given to him by the Father. And this leads us to point number two, or reason number two that Christians are Christian. Reason number two that Christians are Christian is that Jesus receives those that the Father gives to him. Notice, two, still in verse six, the men whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours and you gave them to me. So reason number one is in verse six, I have manifested your name to the men, notice the next phrase, whom you gave me out of the world. Now watch the next three words. They were, notice, yours. So who do they belong to? They belong to you, Father. Always have been, always have been yours. They belonged to you in the past. They belong to you now. They were yours, notice again, and you gave them to me. And Jesus receives them. Now, some may ask at this point, God does something for some people that he doesn't do for all? And I say with all humility, yes, he does. Some will answer, but that's not fair. Well, not really, because if God were fair, then everyone would end up where? In hell. God does what he's going to do. See, both groups are sinners, both groups are guilty, both groups deserve eternal judgment, and since both groups deserve judgment, God is perfectly just in judging them both. However, according to his own secret, mysterious, sovereign will, he has chosen to manifest himself to some. Can't get around this. The Bible speaks. I mean, think about this. Why is it that two people can hear the same gospel message? One responds in repentance and faith, and one never does. And the one who never does hears the gospel over and over and over again, and he never responds, but some do. It is not because one is smarter than the other. It is not because one is more upright than the other. It is because God 
goes beyond general revelation with one and not the other. God provides efficacious grace for one and not the other. God provides an effectual calling to one and not the other. He calls them in a way that is effective, that moves them, that changes them, that grants them the faith to come, you see. And you know what it's motivated by? Nothing on their part. It is motivated by nothing other than his good and his own pleasure. His pleasure. It's certainly not by any good in me, brothers and sisters. Amen? Nothing good in me. This is a picture, okay, friends. This is a picture of God drawing one to himself while he simply passes over the other. All deserve hell. He has chosen, God has, to give a group to the Son for whom he will draw to Jesus. I want to ask you to turn to John chapter 6 to see what I'm talking about here. Now, John chapter 6 is a very, very pivotal point in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, if you will, at verse 37 and notice the words of Christ to those Galilean followers, thousands of them, as he preached throughout Galilee. In John 6.37, Jesus said, All, how many? All that the Father, what? Gives me, will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So, once again, those given to the Son from the Father will come, that is the guarantee. The one who comes will not be cast out, ever. Why? Because they were given. The ones who come are the ones who are given. The ones who truly come, I should say, are the ones who are given. And the ones who are given will not be cast out. This verse, John 6, 37, is known as the universal negative of the gospel. If you don't know that, write that down. It's the universal negative of the gospel. Place it up on the shelf like a bookend. That's the universal negative. Positive, rather, of the gospel. We move down a few verses and we see the universal negative of the gospel in verse 44. Notice, verse 37, all that the Father gives me, guaranteed they will come, and the one who comes I will not cast out. Verse 44, no one can come to me, what? Unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, this word, this verb, draw, It does not mean to beckon, it does not mean to advise, nor does it mean, as many teach, it means, many teach that God is wooing everyone to himself with the hope that some will come. No, the word draw, you can look it up, it literally means in the Greek, to drag. To drag. The same verb, helkuo, is used in a number of verses in the New Testament, and I just want to share some of them with you now. If you recall, in John chapter 21, Jesus died, he rose from the dead, he revealed, he showed his disciples that he's risen from the dead. Peter said one day, I'm going fishing. Some of the disciples went with him. They're out on the boat, they fish all night, they catch nothing. At dawn, there's Jesus on the shore, a hundred yards out from where they are. Little children, you've caught nothing. Nope, caught nothing, that's right. Throw the net on the right side of the boat for a great catch. They throw the net out. 
The catch is so great, they can barely pull the nets up into the boat. John says, it's the Lord. They didn't recognize him. Peter goes, it's the Lord. He puts his clothes on, he jumps in the water, he swims to shore. Jesus said to him, to them by that time, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of large fish. He dragged the net to shore containing 153 fish. Same verb. In Acts 16, 19, it says they seized Paul, they seized Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. In Acts chapter 21, verse 30, then all the city, same verb, all the city was provoked and the people rushed together and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple. Same verb. This is like going to a water well. Standing atop the water well, you're thirsty. You look down, 20, 30 feet deep. You are not going to woo the water up to you, amen? No. You will take the bucket, you will take that rope, throw that bucket in, and you will draw water up in order to quench your thirst. Yes or no? Absolutely. I'll try to illustrate this for you. In 1971-72, I was six or seven years old. I'm the oldest of five, and at that time there was four of us breathing. We lived in a very large house. I remember it was a hot summer night. Mom and Dad tucked us in. They had a dinner party that night. I remember it being hot. This is in the Midwest. It gets humid. So Mom and Dad had a fan in their room in the window, and it would blow air down the hall. I woke up in the middle of the night. I had to go to the bathroom so badly, but I couldn't get up. I had a terrible sore throat. I just couldn't get up. Well, unbeknownst to me, the house is on fire upstairs. A thunderstorm rolled in. A wind blew that fan onto the floor of my parents' bedroom. They're downstairs having a party, dinner party. They have no idea what's going on. It catches the floor on fire. Things start to burn. The entire upstairs is full of smoke. I'm dying. My little sister at that time was about four years old. She was very shy. She didn't want to go downstairs. She heard the company, so she sat on the top step until they left. She goes downstairs. I can't imagine what my father looked like when he saw her covered in soot. My father ran upstairs. He grabbed my other sister under one arm, my brother under the under, other, the under, other arm. He grabbed me. This is all I remember by the nap of my pajamas and dragged me down the stairs from fire to life. What my father did not do was to come to the foot of the stairs and attempt to woo us out of our unconsciousness. I would have died. And as sinners, we're dead. Call my dad today to wish him Happy Father's Day for that. <laughs> Jesus Christ 
receives the sinners that are drawn by the Father because they're given to him in the first place. Who, do then, who then do we witness here in John 17? Who do we witness Jesus praying for? This is the select group of verse 2b out of the larger group of 2a. Look at verse 2, John 17. Jesus came to this hour, verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. Now, all flesh, this is a Hebraism indicating all people, all humanity from throughout all the world. Christ has authority over every living creature. Christ has authority over the universe, brothers and sisters. He has authority over all flesh, without exception, authority to maintain their physical life, authority to end their life, authority to save them or to judge them spiritually and eternally. He has that authority. And then within that larger group is a smaller group given to him by the Father, to all whom you have given him that he may give eternal life. To who? Out of the smaller group, out of that larger, all-inclusive group of flesh. That is the group for whom he came to this hour. For the glory of the Father. See, friends, once Christians come to terms with the sovereign, holy, elective purposes of God, that same group of people will stop asking the presumptuous and arrogant question, why does God save some and not all? And they will begin to ask much more reverently and humbly, why does God save any at all, least of which me? That's the question we should be asking. That's the amazing question. Why does God save any? Is what people ask once they begin to look at Him first. Once they begin to see his magnificence, his holiness, his separateness from his creation, when they see him as holy and they see him as righteous and they see his character in his glory, the Christians will change. And they will move from first looking at sinful, finite, wicked men. Changes their question, doesn't it? Reason number three that Christians are Christian. Notice, they embrace God's word. Reason number three, they embrace God's word. So because they're given from the Father and received by the Son, the result is, now this is the result, they embrace the word. That's the result. They're chosen, they're given, they're received, therefore, they keep the word. And they have kept your word. Now, they keep the word not because there's anything good in and of themselves, right? Because then you'd have something to boast about. They have no merit. on This is not for the sake of merit. It's not because they were more brilliant than the next sinner 
to look at Scripture and go, oh, yeah, I believe the Old, uh, you know, well, what we know is the Old Testament. That's what they would have been looking at. Yep, Jesus fulfills it all, no doubt. It's not because of that. But once again, it is solely because of God's saving grace. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. According to the power of God. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purposes and according to his grace, which was granted us in Christ from all eternity. What do we do with that? We can't reject that, friends. And because the gospel came according to the power of God, and because according to his own purpose and according to his own grace, granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity the ability to understand this truth, they therefore, we therefore, keep his word. They have kept your word. To keep the word of Christ means to accept it by faith, number one. Secondly, it means to obey it. And thirdly, to stand guard over it. That's what shepherds do. Stand guard over the flock. We stand guard, watchmen on the wall with the truth of God. Amen? God's people love his word. How do you recognize a Christian? They love the word of God. They keep the word of God by grace. Their desire is to keep the word of God, but they stumble, but they fall. That's right. But they get up again because of grace. Their desire, their passion is for Jesus Christ, the word of God. They keep his word because they were given from the Father to the Son. That's why. All people fail to understand God's word unless the Spirit makes his truth comprehensible. It's like a blind man trying to read a book. See, this is why we pray as we proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. People have been praying for everyone that would walk through these doors this week, this day, all week. People pray for you right now. People pray for me that the power of God would be unleashed by way of his word to reach the lost, to build up the Christian you see. Because my effort is powerless. My effort is powerless unless God intervenes to do his miracle. Thus Paul says, according to the power of God. This is according to the power of God. The gospel, according to the power of God. Not John Leader or any other pastor shepherd. No, the power of God. So Christians who are truly Christian, they embrace the word of God. It's a result of what God has already done, you see. They can't earn merit by keeping it. You can't keep it unless he grants you the grace to love it and aspire towards it and to keep it. Come on, somebody. Reason number four that Christians are Christians. They receive supernatural insight. They receive supernatural insight. Now, those given by the Father are received by the Son. They thereby embrace God's word. How do they do that? 
because they've been granted supernatural ability to see and to believe. That's why. Verse 7 and 8. Now, Jesus prays to the Father, they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood. Key word, truly. Truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. Understanding and truly understanding are two different realities, friends. Many people will end up in hell who understood the facts of the gospel. Many Bible students, many seminary students didn't truly understand. This group, these 11, have entered into the knowledge which has been spoken to them for three plus years. 11 out of the 12. They knew the essential core of his work. They knew his divine origin. They knew his messianic purposes, friends. They knew him, truly. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. They received them and truly understood. Now, that knowledge was weak, amen? We know that they're about to scatter like a bunch of little sheep, aren't they? Why are they going to scatter like a bunch of sheep? Because Zechariah the prophet said so. God said so through the prophet. Judas was about to betray him. Why? Because it was written in Scripture that he would. Scripture must be fulfilled. Many understand the facts of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, but they truly do not understand because they cannot. Jot this down, if you would, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Oh, Christians, this is encouraging. Listen to this. The thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who's from God. Look at the purpose clause. In order that we may know the things freely given to us by God. By God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he what? Next word. He cannot understand them. He can't. Because they're spiritually appraised, but we, verse 16, in Christ, have the mind of Christ. See that? They received, friends, supernatural insight. If you're a Christian, you've been granted supernatural insight to see and to believe, to embrace, to love, to have passion for Christ, who is the Logos, the Word, and you want to keep His Word because He enables you to do so. You know, many, many other people, friends, saw the miracles, they saw the signs, and they saw the wonders that these men did, and they couldn't believe. Turn back to John chapter 12 a moment. Look at verse 37. But though he, Jesus, had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not 
believing in him. They would not believe. This, why didn't they believe? Why wouldn't they believe? Well, verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who's believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, for this reason, they could not believe. Would not, here, could not. For Isaiah said, once again, he has blinded their eyes. He hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of who? Him. Who's the him he's referring to? Jesus in his glory in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah saw the manifest glory of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The words you gave me, Father, point to this God-given message. And this is what Jesus passed on to the disciples. And this is what the disciples would pass on to us. John chapter 17, verse 20. And the same reason they believe is the same reason you believe. Because God the Father gave you to the Son in eternity past. That's why. Reason number five that a Christian is a Christian Jesus prays for them. Jesus prays for them. Verse 9. I ask on their behalf, back to John 17. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. He prays on their behalf. He does not ask on behalf of the world. We got that, amen? But of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Very simply, Jesus prays for those given to him. He prays for those given to him from the Father. Specifically here for the eleven is a kind of prototype for all who will be drawn to believe in verse 20. The men whose case that Jesus desired to plead here in this prayer are those who've been given because they're the people of God. Remember in the Old Testament when Aaron, the high priest, he had his ephod on and he had these beautiful stones and engraved within these stones were certain names. And he went and prayed specifically for those names. No one else. He interceded before the Lord and he prayed for those names, the 12 tribes of Israel. Who were they? God's people. God's people. Jesus prays for those given to him as the very people of God. Jesus says, I'm simply commending to you, Father, those that are already yours. Remember, he's praying for things that are certain. He's praying for things that are most certain to come to pass. It's a guarantee. He said in verse 2, or verse 1, I have... Wait a minute, he said in verse 1, he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh. And you get down to verse 4, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. But he hadn't gone to the cross yet, had he? But it was as good as done, wasn't it? It was as good as done. Do you realize, believers, Christians, I'm talking to you, true believers, do you realize how precious you are in Christ? to the Father and to the Son. That's my hope that you walk away with this morning, as we shall see. We're not done yet. Reason number six, that Christians are Christian. 
Here's the big one. This is the capstone, brothers and sisters. This is the capstone of it all. They are the praise of the glory of His grace. They are the praise of His, of the glory of His grace. This is why His plan was set into motion. This is why God made this plan. He created this plan before the foundations of the earth. This is why God had a book, the book of life, and in that book were names before the foundation of the earth. That's why, that the sun would be most gloriously magnified at Calvary, you see? And this is is even more plain in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, which was our opening reading this morning. Ephesians 1, jot this down, verse 4. Just as he chose us in him, okay, this is God chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Okay, now notice this. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his what? Grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. The beloved one, Jesus Christ. So God predestined us sinners for adoption to the praise of the glory of his grace. That is why his plan was made and set into motion, again, for the glory of his grace. What Piper said the other night was this, about verse 6. Piper, in his book, refers to verse 6 as the verse for which all other things exist, period. All things, including sin and the evil of men, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Now, although everyone was evangelized that was within earshot of the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry, it was only the enlightened that responded. And why was that the case then? And why is that the case today? And quite frankly, there is no explanation given. And God does not owe us an explanation. Other than the fact that there was a group given to the Son by the Father in eternity past is what we know. And that is you, friend. If you're in Christ, that is you. This should affect your life greatly. Greatly. So because of this giving, there would be granted to them the grace to respond. You see, the gospel goes out to all people indiscriminately. But the saving action of God upon the human heart that enables a man, woman, or child to believe and to know Him truly, to truly know Him, is the sovereign, selective work which only God Himself can perform. I can declare the Word of God to you until I turn even more red in the face than I am right now. (laughs) But only God can speak to the heart. Only God can take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Only God can cause a sinner to embrace Jesus Christ. Now I know that when you come to a point in a sermon like this, some will certainly say, well, if this be true, then we have no will. Heard that? Hopefully you haven't said that if you're a believer. But we all have will, friends. We all have choices. But because we're sinners, because we're completely depraved, Our will and our choices in no way whatsoever can ever or will ever please God. It's impossible. 
That is why we must be transformed. That is why Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born again. Well, how does that happen? Well, as the wind blows to and fro, Jesus says, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who's born again. That's a supernatural work that only God can accomplish, friends. Now, others might say, well, this sovereign will of God violates human responsibility then, doesn't it? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the more gospel truth that one hears and rejects, the greater their condemnation will be in hell. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11 for an example. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. We're getting close. But just as we all know that because we'll spend 50 bucks with our family to go to a movie and spend two and a half hours, we would much more rather spend one hour listening to the Word of God. Amen? Amen. That's what I'm talking about. You see that as manipulative? (laughs) Matthew 11, verse 20. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for you and for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, everything we know about Capernaum, uh, they weren't hostile towards the gospel. They were just more flippant, kind of passive about the whole thing. There's many people that attend church, they're just passive about the gospel, indifferent. They remain indifferent all their lives. They can't believe. We pray that God would awaken them. Verse 25, and at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Not not infants like Gabriel, but simple people. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Friends, if you're one who resists the glorious truths of God's sovereign election as declared in Scripture... And that he came to this hour, which was the cross, for that particular group, it may very well be the simple stubbornness of your own heart. This is the last truth in the world that ought to offend a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The last truth. But incidentally, the only people that are offended by this are Christians who come out of a very man-centered theology who are victims of a man-centered form of teaching. Thus they're offended at God. It's not me. This is truth. 
They're offended at God. They're offended at His sovereign grace. There is not an unbeliever in the world who would give two hoots about God's elective purposes and salvation. Come on, somebody. Nobody. What do they care? It's misinformed Christians. You see, once a Christian drops his or her pride and stops rejecting the clear teaching of Jesus Christ and come to terms with sovereign grace, the result will be a bowing of the knee, a bowing of the mind, a bowing of the will to the authority of the Word of God and His sovereign purposes. And they'll be finally overcome, as Jonathan Edwards says, with this, sweet, sweet sovereignty. Now, people getting all bent out of shape, people leaving churches because of the preaching of sovereign grace, and three years ago that happened to here. We lost half the people when I took over. But now look what God's doing. It didn't begin with Pacific Hope. It didn't begin with Luther. It didn't begin with Calvin. It didn't begin with Owen. It didn't begin with Edwards. It began with Jesus Christ. I'll show you where it began. Turn back to John 6. Hold your finger here, though. Hold your finger. We've got to go back here. Hold your finger in Matthew 11. Go back to John 6 one more time. People getting bowed up and bent out of shape because of the sovereign will and purposes of God and salvation began right here. Look at verse 63. Jesus had been preaching to a very large group of Galileans. This is the same mob that he fed out in the hills. 5,000 men plus women and children. They came the next day looking for Jesus because they wanted their belly filled again. And Jesus addressed that. You seek me only because you ate yesterday and your gut's filled. That's why you seek me. Verse 63. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there's some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying... For this reason I said to you, remember verse 44? It's for this reason that I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been what? Granted him from the Father. I'm telling you, and I've told you this before, I'm telling you again, Jesus said, that no one can come to me unless it's been granted from the Father. And then a result of this, verse 66, many of his disciples, simply meaning followers, withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So, Jesus turned to his twelve. You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? Next week when we get to verse 12 of John chapter 17, Jesus said, Not one of them that you gave me perished except the son of perdition in order that the scriptures would be fulfilled. That's for next time. Now, back to Matthew 11. Wrapping up. Now, friends, perhaps you're here this morning, and you realize, perhaps for the first time in your life, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ you recognize for the first time the depravity, the corruption of your own stole, and that you stand guilty before this holy God. The one you've been running from all your life, the one you've been resisting as long as you can remember. 
His demands are lifelong, perfect, willful obedience to his law. That's his standard to get to heaven. That, my friends, is an impossible task. But that's the standard. But there's good news. Look at verse 28, Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, friends? The one who has authority over all flesh, back in verse 2, John 17, is the one who has authority to invite people to himself. Come to me. This is an invitation to personally surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ as who he is. He is Lord. You don't make him Lord. He is Lord. You either submit or you don't. All who labor, he says, and are heavy laden. This means all people who are under the burden of trying to earn salvation through good works, their religious activity, church attendance, going to Bible college, because you went to confirmation, you went to seminary, you can't earn salvation. Human religious achievement is a yoke of slavery. Take my yoke, he said. Take his yoke. A yoke was a wooden frame. It joined two animals together to pull a heavy load. Jesus said, by contrast, my yoke of discipleship, although it is indeed demanding, is easy because it comes from the one who's gentle and lowly in spirit. That's me, Jesus said. I bear your burden. I will bring you rest through commitment to me. You see, if you're the one who's here today and he says, come to me, you must come. You have to come. And when you come, you will have a passion and a delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will love his word because you will, for the first time in your life, understand the price at Calvary, the cross, where he bore the shame. And he bore the curse of the Father. He bore the wrath of God in the place of those who come and prove to be faithful disciples. So lay hold of Jesus by faith. And you too, at length, will come to the glory of his electing purposes and you will rejoice in the love that he has shown to all those that were given to him by the Father. There's no argument against this. So church, don't reject this truth. Don't reject this truth. But embrace it with thanksgiving. The fact that he chose you, he chose you because of his good pleasure. That is it. You had nothing. You offered nothing. I offered nothing. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were worse than me in that fire. I had a couple breaths left. We were spiritually dead, and he gave us life. Remember when David danced before the Ark of the Lord? Remember the Ark of the Lord was brought back to Jerusalem? 
David danced before the Lord, and he danced so joyfully that he exposed himself accidentally. Saul's daughter was watching the whole scenario. And the scripture says that she despised him in her heart. And then she mockingly inquired of David as to why he was acting so foolish, so undistinguished. And David answered this in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 21. Why? I was dancing. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. And he goes on to say this. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. Sovereign election ought to cause God's people to rejoice and celebrate before the Lord while at the same time cause us to be incredibly humble in our own eyes. I'm not talking about false humility. Oh, we don't go there. We don't teach that. No, we teach that with love and authority because his word says so. But we're so grateful for what he's given us. I have manifested your name, Jesus said, to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. Father, we thank you for this time. I thank you for these dear people. I thank you for this church. Your church, your bride. And first of all, I pray for them. Lord, anyone who's been resisting this truth, anyone who fights against this truth, anyone who despises your sovereign purposes and will, I pray that today would be the day that by your grace they'd embrace this truth, that they would celebrate like David but yet remain so humble in response to this glorious, sovereign, predetermined, predestined will of our Creator. We are the clay and you are the potter. Mold us as you will for your glory. Grant us the wisdom to pray according to your will that your sovereign will established in eternity past would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, for those who walked in this morning, unbelievers, merely agreeing with the facts, I pray today that you crush them to brokenness. I pray today by your sovereign power and your Holy Spirit's presence that you would cause them to see their utter depravity, their helplessness, and they are dead in trespasses and sins, that they by grace would call out to you for mercy, that they would ask for forgiveness, they would declare your name as Lord and Savior of the universe and repent of their sin and follow you. Grant them repentance, we pray. The ability to believe, the ability to see, by grace, embracing your truth, is they embrace our sovereign Savior, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.